Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. In the middle of September, um, after the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, the week after, Formula One will go to Mugello for the first time. And the official name of the race is, Andrew, and I'm going to get this right, uh, it's Formula One Pirelli Gran Premio della Toscana Ferrari Mille. And then, oh, well done. And then whatever 2020 is in Italian. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, point being, um, because of... You know, we're all well aware of how disrupted the 2020 season has been. Formula One has had to scramble a new calendar, hasn't it? And one of the new races is Mugello, which is owned by Ferrari. And conveniently, um, or perhaps by design, it will be the Scuderia's 1,000th championship Formula One Grand Prix, which is it's a hell of a thing, isn't it? A thousand races. Yeah, I wonder... And somebody might be able to tell us, but I suspect actually not that had the season gone ahead as originally planned, would their thousandth Grand Prix have been the Italian Grand Prix? I don't know the answer to that question. That would have been that would have been amazing. It, it actually, I'll, I haven't forgotten your question. I'll get back to it in a minute. Um, it, but it takes me back to the 1988 season, um, which was the season in which um, McLaren did what Mercedes looked like they might do this season, in that they won. Every single race, bar one, they won, I think, 15 out of 16 races. And the only race they didn't win was the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, which was the next race after Enzo Ferrari had died and Ferrari came first and second. <laughs> wow. Which, God, which is as spooky that. an event as I've ever seen in Formula One. Um, I did say I wouldn't forget what your question was, but I have now forgotten it. Well, actually, I think you've raised the more interesting topic. <laughs> um, do, you, do, you think, do you think that was spooky or might that have been engineered somehow? No, no, it wouldn't, no, it wouldn't be engineered, no, because I think Prost had the, 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 the one and only mechanical failure of the year and Senna just tripped over someone. No, there's no way that was engineered. No, absolutely, categorically not. Uh, it was also on the way back from that race that a rather cheesed-off McLaren team in the form of 
of um, Ron Dennis and Gordon Murray dreamt up the, the concept for the, for the F1. But we've been into that on a previous podcast, so we ain't going to do that now. So, Thousand Grand Prix at, at Mugello. Um, I don't know if you've been to Mugello, Dan. It's an no. epic circuit. Absolutely mega circuit. It's going to be, and you know, I think the one great thing about this season uh, is that you know we're going to get to play. I mean, Portimao as well. Formula One's going to go there, and the Formula One cars around Portimao are going to be just sensational. Uh, but yes, back to Ferrari in a thousand. It's only a thousand Grand Prix if you count it a certain way. Because there oh, of have course. been, yeah, that, it had to be more complicated than that. Didn't well, it? of course, but I mean, it's true because I mean there have been certain. I th- I think, and I may be wrong. I think it includes races in which Ferraris took part, even if they were private entries. And it, it may be, for instance, that for various political reasons, Ferrari did entry a factory, a factory team, but under a privateer's name. So it's a bit of a. Uh, I think you can count it more ways than one, but I think it is probably as legitimate a thousandth Grand Prix as any other way you might count it. So let's count it as the thousandth Grand Prix. And yeah, I mean, wow, I think, and again, someone will correct me, but I think next up is something McLaren, which have done something like 850, which is a lot. Um, but, you know, Ferrari and Formula One, I mean, there are people who think they're completely indivisible. Indeed, you couldn't have one. Uh, without the other, you certainly couldn't have Formula One without without Ferrari, and maybe we'll touch on whether that's true or not later on. But they have been there every single season. It's their seventy first season in Formula One, from the first race from Silverstone nineteen fifty. There, Ferrari's on the grid, uh, and there have been not quite in every race because again politics has got in the way of a few things, and sometimes Enzo was in a was a, was in a huff with the with the English garagistas and, and and refused to turn up. But so they haven't done every single race, but they have definitely done every single season since then. Yeah, I think Formula One officially celebrated the 1,000th GP last year, didn't it? Um, and again, there were, there were lots of different ways to count that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's taken a few more months for Ferrari's 1,000th. Okay, so, so, so they are probably, what? I mean, at most 20, probably fewer than that, 15 Grand Prix uh, that they haven't been to in the last 71 seasons. A few Indy 500s in that? Uh, maybe, maybe. Good point. Good point. But there might have been Ferraris in some of those Indy 500s because, although, I, again, I'm not sure as it works, but I know that Ascari went off to Indy in the early 50s. I don't know. I'd need to go and look it up. <laughs> Sorry. I, <laughs> not even my rather sad trivia levels are quite up to uh, being able to pull that one out of the hat. But yeah, maybe. Um, so what chance then of a repeat of 88 and that amazing freak incident of you know and this an incredible occasion first race after Enzo's death and a Ferrari wins I mean it's just not going to happen this time around is it that a Ferrari in the thousandth well, race you, you say that I mean nobody would have predicted that they come first and second um in Monza in 1988 I mean on paper of course it's not going to happen I mean Ferrari are the least competitive I don't know I need to look back I mean in 19 19- 80. So Ferrari won the World Championship in 79 with J.D. Schechter driving the 312 T4. Uh, and they thought that car did such a good job. Uh, and they were going over to turbos anyway, so they just needed an interim car for 1980. So they basically just gave the T4 a bit of a fettle and called it the T5. And it literally went from being a World Championship winning car to, on occasions, being unable to qualify for the race. And so in 1980... Um, yeah, for, that was the least competitive I can remember Ferrari being. And they were then you know, actually quite a lot less competitive than they are now. But I can't remember, um, which may say more about me than Ferrari, uh, a season between those two points when they've been much worse off than they are at the moment. And the other thing I would say is I think the car 
is actually doing better than it deserves to do because I think Leclerc is just wringing the neck of the thing and he's also not making any mistakes. Two podiums. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think he's had a second, a third and a fourth, um, which is not on pace where that car should be. Um, and you only have to look at its qualifying uh, record to to know that. So, you know, um, so, you know, on paper, of course, it's not going to happen. They're not going to win the thousandth Grand Prix. And no, I'm, not even I'm quite cynical enough to think that, <laughs> um, that, 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 that somehow the powers that be will arrange for the Mercedes to crash into each other. But, you know, shit happens, doesn't it? And cars do crash into each other. And, you know, it doesn't need to be a one two like it was at Monza in 88. Um, you know, if you have a uh, an environment where I'm about to say you've got your home crowd because there won't be any crowds there, but you know, nevertheless, you're on, you're on home territory. Um, the Mercedes have a mayor, and you know they've had a mayor already once this season um, at the 70th uh, anniversary Grand Prix at Silverstone. It could happen again, uh, and then you know if if all the stars align and Max isn't necessarily on the form of his life, I'm not really. I don't think it'll happen for a moment, but I, I wouldn't be so bold as to just go, nah, forget it not going to happen because it, it just it. That, that's that's why we're going to tune in isn't it yeah of course because i mean you'd want it to happen wouldn't you or maybe, or maybe you wouldn't um, i mean i i sort of you know cut me and i bleed ferrari so I, I i may look at it slightly differently to other people but i i just love it i really would i think that would just be a nice little fairy tale but um yeah sadly as with other fairy tales they tend not to come true very often well let's talk a little bit about this season so far from a ferrari point of view because uh, well, I, actually, I mean, the story begins with last season, doesn't it? When Ferrari were winning, winning lots of races, had scored a string of pole positions, but then got hauled up by the FIA for some engine irregularity. Um, and then all of a sudden, no more pole positions, no more wins. Um, and it's, it's all shrouded in mystery and secrecy because the FIA, in its wisdom, elected never to actually explain what the outcome was or what, what, what the issue was with Ferrari's engine. But what we know is that it's lost a load of performance and it's Ferrari's engine customer teams have lost a huge amount of performance as well. Um, yes. So, I mean, which, it, which would suggest, and, and we have to be we have to be so careful, don't we? Because the thing is, you and I you just can think say it's it. you and me. Well, you know, you and I just think this is just you and me, um, you know, chatting to each other down the pub, and we can say what we like. But uh, I understand that there may be a few people listening, and you can't just sort of come out and say it. I think what we can say is that the evidence would suggest that Ferrari's engine has lost a lot of power, and it did so at about the time they got investigated by the FIA. And, and and draw whatever conclusions you 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 like from that. Um, and obviously, and we've seen this happen with other teams in the past. That when suddenly you find yourself with a car with no power, it's not the problem. Isn't just that you can't get down the straights very fast. Um, what you have to do is trim the car out because otherwise, you know, to, 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 to increase your straight line speed, because you know that tends to be where you get overtaken most of the time. Um, and so you run with less wing. So you at least, you know, don't have a car that can't get out of its own way going down the straight. But then you just create other problems. So you, and you get a car which is really, really difficult to handle, which is, which is what they've got this season. Because, you know, the, the car, I'm sure, is running, you know, aero, which, you know, bears in mind that the car just doesn't have as much power as, you know, the, the best other cars on the grid. And, and it's sad, isn't it? Because, you know, there's the old adage about Ferraris is that, you know, when you bought a Ferrari, you bought an engine and they chuck the rest of the car in free. Because the one thing you knew about Ferrari is that it would have a stonking engine in it. They always did. And for Ferraris to be hobbled because they're just, you know, not coming up to snuff in the engine department is just kind of, 
don't know, it'd be sad for any team, but for someone it's particularly um, for Ferrari, so far as I can see it. Ah, it's a real pity, isn't it? Um, so, so we mentioned Leclerc, you know, the, the car is not on his side, but he's, he's driving beautifully and he's sort of wrestling good results out of that car. But on the flip side of that is his teammate. Um, and that love affair, it's, well, it's long since over, isn't it? And it, we're now witnessing a, a slow and drawn-out divorce. Um, I think we are. I mean, he, he, he just gives the impression, because I'm sure it's true, um, is that he just doesn't want to be there. He just doesn't want to be doing it. And he is... And we talked about this in our Formula One podcast, and I think uh, before the start of the season, and I said, and, and I think we kind of hoped more than we thought that Vettel would have, you know, some kind of, you know, last laugh, a, a swan song performance that would allow him to, you know, leave the sport with, um, well, of course, his reputation. You know, he's a four times world champion, for goodness sake. But, you know, we all wanted to go out with a raw, didn't we? And this is the most whimpering end, you know uncompetitive driving can't keep up with his teammate in a car that is itself uncompetitive and it's just it's just it's just not much fun to watch um and if it's not much fun to watch i can't imagine how not much fun it must be for him sitting in the car it's extraordinary to hear vettel saying mid-race to his engineers you've messed up here um i mean it's it, it, we're witnessing a slow and drawn out divorce and they maybe they should part ways now because they're, they're not working together they're not getting results no. um, um, I mean, they could put some they could put somebody else in the car um and just tell them well, your job is just to get in the way of anybody who tries to get anywhere near Charles. um learn you know you've got half a season to you know earn your spurs and then we may or may not stick you back in it again well they can't stick in the next season have they because they've got no. uh, they've got science coming um but yeah, I can't. I can't see what the downside is because you know it's it, it's not going to cheer up from here. He's not going to suddenly start getting back onto terms with Leclerc, let alone you know the Mercedes or the Red Bull. So yeah, mm. no, I agree with you. Okay, well, we, I mean, this is about Ferrari and not Vettel. But um, just as a, a brief aside, what do you reckon? I mean, we, we know Aston Martin taking over the Racing Point team next season, and there is talk that Vettel might be on his way there. Um, I mean. Uh, he looks a, a sort of a shadow of the driver he was a few years ago, but we, that, we know that's because he's just not getting on with his team. Do you think Aston Martin should snap up Vettel if he's available? Well, he's likely to be quite expensive, isn't he? So, um, and uh, you know, if he's prepared to do it with sort of humility and on a decent fee, I mean, I, I certainly think you want to have a look at it because you know anybody can learn from Vettel. Don't forget that Vettel is not old. You know, Vettel is a lot. I think he's 32 and Lewis is 35. I think he's three years younger than Lewis. So on paper, he's got many more seasons ahead of him. And maybe he is just massively demotivated. I mean, Ferrari has, uh, and I'm not saying for the moment that that is the case. This is the case here. But, you know, Ferrari has, you know, in in, in the past um, struggled to uh, maintain good relations with some of its drivers. And some of it, obviously, people like Michael Schumacher, they have incredible relationships with him, and the entire team was built around him. But, you know, I suspect that at Ferrari, if you're not kind of getting the job done, I suspect they probably won't have an awful lot of time for you. I don't really imagine it's a particularly nurturing pace. I may be wrong about that. Um, and it could be that he could just go somewhere else and get a second leaf of life and just go, right, let's do it. And you could see a man transformed. Um, I certainly wouldn't rule it out because, you know, he is class. He has got an enormous talent. He's not old. He's got massive experience. I mean, on paper, it's all there. And, you know, and if Alonso can come back uh, at 36 uh, and, and if Kimi's out there at 40, you know, Vettel, you know, should have 
you know, a decent number of seasons in him. And, you know, and, and if you put him in the right car, he should be back up the front. I just think that he's totally de- dispirited, demoralised, demotivated and just just wants to be anywhere else. I think Alonso's older than that. I think he's um, 39 now. I think 40 before he, he gets yeah, back no, in that Renault. Right. No, I think um, you're right. But, uh, well, yeah, there we go. I mean, one last comment on um, on Vettel and Racing Point becoming Aston Martin. Um, I, I think there's a feeling at Aston Martin as a British team that they'll need a, a British driver. Um, it seems highly unlikely that the bloke who owns the team and ultimately the business <laughs> itself is going to kick his son out of the car. Well, um, exactly. So perhaps perhaps that'll be the deciding thing. I, I mean, do you know who I, who I want to see in that Aston Martin next year? Go on. Although we we know it's not going to happen because he signed again with Williams, hasn't he? Oh, you, um, want, you want to see George in it? I do. Yeah, yeah, I know. It would be good, wouldn't it? It would be very cool. Right, we're supposed to be talking about Ferrari. You've 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 already said that um, if we cut you, you bleed Ferrari. Um, I know you view the racing team and the car manufacturer as sort of separate entities. I do. Um, so so which was it that first um, sort of stole your heart as a young boy? Oh, it was definitely the roadcast. It was absolutely the roadcast. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up, I mean, I can remember, and I've written about, about this, maybe not on DN, the, 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 the kind of the first memory I have, I have odd memories of cars and things, but the first thing that has really stuck and I regard as my kind of moment where suddenly this entire world switched on for me was I was, I was in London with my father, and I can't remember where we were going, uh, but it involved going through Egham. Um, and in Egham back then was Maranello Concessionaires, um, which was uh, the company founded by Colonel Ronnie Hoare, and its job was to import and distribute Ferraris in the UK. Um, and they had a lovely building on the Egham Bypass, um, and my father, I think just for a laugh, decided that he would drive past. And as we drove past, and I started sorting these cars, I probably started gibbering. So he actually sort of went and parked in the car park. And I can, I can remember going over to these cars, and the first thing I saw was a boxer. Now, this must have been about 1974 or 75, so I would have been eight or nine. And seeing the back of this car and realizing it had six exhaust pipes. And that was just like it for me. I can remember I had to sit down on the tarmac. I was so completely overwhelmed by this, the, the most beautiful car I'd ever seen, and its six exhaust pipes. And then I looked around, and there were Daytonas, and there were Dinos, and I mean, I was just, it was just absolute heaven to me. Um, and, and, and I've just always... Yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't, I have to say, um, and people will just have to believe me, it has never, I hope, got in the way of my ability to tell a good Ferrari from a bad Ferrari. And I think I've probably kicked more Ferraris than, than most people have over the last 30 years. But in my heart, I, I just, I just, I mean, yeah, certainly those cars from back then, um, you know, things like 365 GTC4s and, oh, gee, they're just, they were so beautiful uh, and they made such exquisite noises. And, you know, I didn't know what they were like to drive, but I could imagine um, kind of how heroic they would be um, and how exciting they would be to go fast in one of these things. And it was just, you know, in, in every respect, it was everything that I, I wanted from from a car. So, yeah, that's kind of what lit the fire. And then actually, you know, when they went through their, I mean, they have had, you know, off days and, and actually quite long periods when they weren't terribly good. I mean, if you take, for instance, the... 
sort of late 80s, early 90s, when they had things like the Testarossa and the 348 and the Mondial. I mean, I don't think, I mean, although you could make a case for any of those cars in terms of, you know, having sort of Italian charm and a certain look, I don't think any objective observer would put their hands on their hearts and go, those were great, even great cars, let alone great Ferraris. Um, And, you know, and I kind of... Yeah, so when those moments came along, by which stage I was kind of working in the business, um, I kind of felt it even more. And I felt, I actually felt that it was, I could, it was easier for me to really get stuck into those cars because I kind of knew how good Ferrari had been and how good it should be. Um, and yeah, so, you know, they, they have been up, they have been up and down. So I, I say cut me and I bleed Ferrari, absolutely, but I am not blind when it comes to the subject of Ferrari at all. Okay, well, on that topic, um, yeah, we, we know that being critical of the company's cars can have its consequences. <laughs> Sometimes feels a little bit horse's head. Yeah. Um, so, have you ever got on the wrong side of Ferrari? I got on the one. I got on the wrong side of Ferrari. Um, yeah, in the actually long, long time ago. Um, I. When I started Autocar in 88, I was, I was a road tester. And they, they, they realized quite quickly that I couldn't road test cars. Um, and, and, and they just wanted to get rid of me. Um, and I think they were actually trying to find a way of sacking me. But um, in the meantime, they just chucked me onto the news desk where I could do no harm and certainly wouldn't drive any cars. Um, and this was sort of like 89. Um, and it, it was clear to me that a bubble had burst because, you know, back then... Um, and this, I, 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 I'm very aware of the fact that I'm talking about a time when you were, you may, you probably weren't still in nappies, were you? But you were definitely still wearing short trousers. Um, <laughs> I would have thought but, so. But, yes. but, but there was at the end of, um, you know, sort of the Thatcher years, there was a big bull market and people were paying plenty over the odds for a brand new Ferrari. So if you ordered a new 328 GTB, you would happily pay 30, 40% more greater than list to jump the queue to get yourself one of these. Um, and then that was having a second, that, that was having a knock on effect down the line with the, with the second hand market. And, and I just kind of noticed, um, and you know, you didn't need to be a genius because everyone could tell that the, you know, that the economic winds had changed direction and things weren't looking good. And I just noticed that, um, all these prices had just suddenly fallen out of bed. And so I read a news story in Autocar saying the bubbles burst. Um, and they went absolutely bonkers. They went absolutely, I mean, I, I was so lucky because I think the magazine came out on a Wednesday, as it still does. I think it probably took them until Thursday to realise what had gone on and start shouting. And on Friday, I went on holiday. Um, so uh, I was like gone for the next two weeks. But uh, I can remember my poor editor just spent, you know, a lot of time saying, you know, I backed my reporter, you know, blah, 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 and, and, and just so. Um, but since then... Um, I don't think I don't think I've been too. I mean, I don't think that that, that Ferrari have ever treated me unfair. Although they did, well, huh, they did try quite hard once to stop me publishing a story. Um, so a few years back, I was at Maranello doing something with someone. I can't remember what we were driving, but um, whatever. Um, and I was with Andrew English, um, terrific chap, known to many people listening to this, I'm sure, uh, who spends most of his time writing for the Daily Telegraph. Um, and I'm glad I was with him because, A, he's a bloke who has integrity coming out of his ears. Uh, but B, it means I had a witness. Um, but anyway, we were walking along and suddenly we saw Marchione walking towards us. Um, and you know, this is just not something that happens. And, and this wasn't an organized interview or anything. And he had uh, the then head of Ferrari PR in Italy um, with him. And I just thought, I've got one shot at this. 
And there'd been speculation at the time um, that uh, Ferrari were going to do a new Dino. So I just walked up to him, um, introduced myself and said, I know you're a very busy man. I only, I only want the answer to one question. New Dino, if or when? And he just looked me in the eye and just went, when? And I just thought, shit, I've got a story. And this is a proper story. And it's come from the top of the from tree. The top. <laughs> from the absolute top of the tree. Um, and, um, you know, obviously the PR man, who, who by this day was looking fairly appalled, um, was, was not keen for this story to, to come out. And, and we had endless conversations. Uh, and obviously Autocar was the place that I was going to write this story. And there were conversations with the editor um, of Autocar. Um, and, and in the end, um, what they, they realised they couldn't stop us. So what, they, well, so what he said was, well, we'll just tell everybody else. So you won't have an exclusive. Oh. Ah, well, yeah, that's frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, and so, what I can't remember. So, so, I mean, so obviously, you know, this, the, the, which I just thought was just massively unfair. Um, he has since left the company, um, I should say. Um, so, um, so I think I can't remember what it was. I mean, I was a freelancer at the time, so I couldn't say to anybody when a car, whether, when a story would get published or if it would get published but i think there was an arrangement whereby we would keep the exclusive to it um but we would it wouldn't go into that issue because it would interfere with whatever the coverage was of the car we gone down the drive or something so 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 the story came out um and and it was all fine so i kind of won that one but not without quite a big fight um mm, but interesting hey, you know, it wouldn't be ferrari if there wasn't some kind of um you know, well, exactly um, right. Well, I've had just a little bit of insight into how Ferrari sort of operates differently to other sort of comparable car manufacturers. Um, well, yeah, and you're right with stuff going on sort of in the background, beneath the surface. Um, and it's it was the California T launch, I think, in 2014. Um, and we'd all go and drive the car. And then we go back to the... In my head, it was a, a, like a Tuscan villa that we were staying in, but maybe it was elsewhere in Italy, I can't remember. We'd all go back to where we were staying. Um, and then one by one, we were taken to sit in front of the former CEO. Who, who Was it Felisa? Felisa, Amadeo Felisa, yeah. Yeah, taken to sit in front of him. And uh, and you'd walk into this little co- courtyard where he was sat with a few, and in my mind, they're henchmen. <laughs> I suspect they weren't sort of gun-toting heavies, but, you know, he had a, a, gr- a group of people you'd like, around You'd like here. to think they were, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would all add to the mystique, wouldn't it? I've embellished the story even in my own mind. Um, and, you know, I think he was sat underneath an umbrella or something, and you have to explain to him what you thought of the California tea. Um, and, and I think if it's any other Ferrari, it's quite straightforward. You just go, oh, it's wonderful. I loved it. But given the car that it was, you have to sort of, you know, I tried to be diplomatic and polite about it and say, well, I think it does its job quite well and it's not the Ferrari I would choose, but blah, blah, blah. Um, and it, it's extraordinary. You really feel like you're being interrogated. Um, and I'd, I'd never experienced that before on any car launch with any other car manufacturer. Um, but it just, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Ferrari, isn't it? And things... well, it, well, it is Ferrari, but I don't think it's exclusively. I mean, I can remember, okay, so I, this may or may not, be a coincidence there's another uh, Italian company but I can remember I went on a Maserati launch um, and we got out of the cars and we were handed questionnaires which we were expected to fill in critiquing the car um, 
And I just refused to do it because, you know, I don't write for them. I write for my readers. Um, and they hadn't said that this is a requirement of you getting in the car uh, and therefore given us the opportunity to not do so. I, so I just refused to do it. And also, if it's not the CEO of the company doing, I mean, how many times has a PR person said to you when you got out of the car, possibly, maybe even probably in just natural enthusiasm, well, Dan, what do you think of that? And the moment that question comes out, you are in a difficult position because usually, uh, or certainly pre-COVID, um, they'd already paid uh, your airfare to take you somewhere quite nice and they'd probably put you up in a posh hotel and they'd probably given you some good food. Um, and so just because, you know, you're not um, a complete uh, yob, you don't want to turn around and say, well, you know, actually, I just thought the car was a pile of poo, which is, of course, what you should do if that is what you thought. But it's a difficult conversation to have. And so what do you... Uh, what's the, the temptation is to just try and soft soap it and just sort of say, well, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's got its good points and it's got its bad points, but overall I thought it was kind of okay. Uh, at which stage you're stuffed because, you know, then what do you put in print? Because, you know, you can't say it was terrible because then, you know, you've, you've just lied to their faces and you, and you can't say it's wonderful if you don't think that it is. So, you know, I always, I, I just try to duck the question. Usually what I do is, you know, as you know, we always drive in pairs on these things. And I will, I will just turn to whichever poor sap's been sharing the car with me and said, you know, I think Fred better answer that question and then uh, leg it. <laughs> um, or I right, will just, noted for future launches then. Or I will just say something so bloody obvious and meaningless um, that they can't get any traction from it at all. Like, you know, if it's a, you know, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or something, I'll just go, well, it's certainly really fast. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. Tell, you know, t- and tell then me something I don't quickly. already know. And then I leg it. Um, it's, yeah. Um, I did have, I, I won't mention this person's name, um, but I was once, uh, I think I was constructively quite, I was constructive, but quite critical of a car. Um, and a PR person from an Italian car, car manufacturer did come up to me and say, I thought we were friends. <laughs> Which, <laughs> was one of the least professional things i've ever heard anybody say um and and, and this person is not still in the business either so I, <laughs> I, I i i can say it without them knowing who it is but yes i thought we were friends yeah well it's you're extraordinary isn't that. it absolutely yeah I, I wonder if I, I do sometimes wonder it and we know lots of these people i do sometimes wonder if you know the press offices the pr people if they consciously and if they discuss between themselves how they can just apply that little bit of pressure to people like us to make us you know approach a written review with a slightly sunnier tone i bet i bet i bet it's discussed sometimes yeah but you know what i think it's really bad pr i really don't think that they should because i don't think you should be making any journalist worth his or her sort is just going to feel uncomfortable if um put in that position um and to me you know the best PRs from the point of view of making it most likely for me to not get in a grump about their behaviour is just let me get on with it. You know, don't put anything in my way. Just you don't have to fly me halfway around the world. Just give me a car and give me a decent road to drive it on, and then just leave me alone. Um, you know, don't sit me through three-hour pest conferences and then two and a half-hour Q and Q and A sessions after that. Um, obviously, send me all the material. You know, provide someone that I can ask questions to. Absolutely, but most of all, give me the car, give me a decent road, and let me do my job. And I, I am always so grateful to any manufacturer who gets that. It's not about you know hotels and restaurants and you know this, that, and the other. It's about you know, 
doing the job that we came to do. So, you know, put us in a car, point us in the general direction. We don't need a specific route, but if you want to give us a specific route, we may or may not stick to it. Um, but point us in the general direction of some decent roads, give us a decent amount of time in the car, and, you know, we'll see you for a beer in the bar later on. You know, job done. Far too, far too often, these manufacturers can't bear not to wine and dine us and put us up in the No, and, 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 and I've they... had this conversation, and, I, and I've said to a few of them in the past, why do you do it? Because I'm sure that every time you have this conversation with any motoring journalist, you know, worth his or her soul, they'll just say, we don't need it. And they say, well, that, that is true. We do have those conversations, and they, and they do say that we don't need it. But they're under pressure from two different directions. Um, one is they are under pressure from what you and I might call uh, lifestyle journalists, um, who may or may not even want to drive the car very much, um, and, and really are just on a jolly. And the positivity of what they write is directly dependent on just how big a jolly they have. Um, and the second thing is they're actually also under a lot of pressure from their bosses, um, because bosses like to, and I understand this, to launch cars in surroundings that reflect what they believe to be their brand values. Um, and so if you're driving a car that costs, you know, a couple of hundred grand or whatever, you know, being put up in the local EBIS probably isn't going to cut it. Um, even if, you know, us lot couldn't care less as long as, you know, as long as the room is, you know, is, is clean and reasonably comfortable, doesn't matter. All I'm going to do is sleep in it. It's, it's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, anyway. Um, we're meant to, we're meant to be talking about Ferraris, aren't we? I know we are. We're we're just over half an hour in, and we've not really covered a great deal of Ferrari ground. I think, you know, this is Ferrari. It's such a huge topic. It's clearly can, can we one call that this, we can, can, can. Can we call this Ferrari podcast part one? Exactly. With parts it's two, one, three, four, or five. Six yeah, to through cover. to fifteen. Yeah. yeah, it's it's clearly one we can revisit time and again. But you know, we'll 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 crack back onto the Ferrari stuff now. Um, and cover off what we can in the next sort of 20, 25 minutes or something. Um, I only went to Marinello for the first time last year. Oh, my God. Yeah, almost, well, sort of 11 months ago now. Um, I think we've said that we'll do a podcast on visiting these car manufacturers, the factories and the headquarters and their test tracks and so on, because to people like us, they're hallowed ground. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I've been to plenty of them, but Ferrari, Marinello... It was unrivaled in terms of that sort of sense of occasion, the romance of it all. Um, you know, when you drive along, it's Via Abertoni in Fiore, isn't it? It is, yeah. The road that goes... Did you, did, did you feel that? Because you would have spent, um, well, I don't know, I don't know how long you've been, you know, reading about cars for. It's probably 25 plus years building up an image of Ferrari and thinking about the place that Ferraris get get made. And, you know, reading rubbish written by people like me about visiting the factory and that sort of... Did it disappoint or did it live up to your... Was it what you expected it to be? And if it wasn't, was it better or worse? Um, I, I was expecting it to be amazing and it was. You know, it was, it was really romantic. Um, I loved seeing that archway where Enzo was photographed and, you know, and actually going through it. And I've, I've always wondered what it looked like back there through the archway. And, of course, it looks like a car factory, <laughs> you know. Um, but then... But you know, I, I, I really like that. I love the fact that that archway is, you know, it's, it's, it's there off the Via Bertoni as much today, um, as it was, you know, when cars first started coming out of there. But it's, I mean, it's not, it's not a beautiful arch, is it? It's basically just a square hole on the side of a building, which you drive through and the, on the other side of it is a car factory. But I love that about it. I love the fact that there is no, sort of you know pomp or circumstance or glamour or glitz it's just there and we all know what it means don't we we all know it's just an arch and anybody else walking past it wouldn't even notice it but to people who know 
we know. Um, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd I'd really like to wander around the older parts of the factory and you know perhaps into Enzo's office. I, I, we didn't get to do that, but we we went to Fiorano, um, and you know when you're lingering around Fiorano and someone points out that that was the house that Enzo used when he was at the test track, um, and he he used to watch. Uh, the Grand Prix on a black and white TV up in there. It's just the coolest thing. And you think about who's driven around that circuit in the past and in more recent times. Yeah. Think about the cars that have gone around there. I mean, it, I, I've in the past been pretty cynical about the whole Ferrari thing. But, um, you know, I just unless you've got a heart of stone or you've got no interest in cars whatsoever, I, you can't help but be moved by that place. No, you can't. Fear, fear on. I mean, absolutely. I mean, that is. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, um, my F1 hero was Gilles Villeneuve, um, who sadly got killed at Zolder in 1982. But I mean, uh, I, I can remember I, I was reading you know, Autosport, and you know, it would be the start of a new season. Ferrari come out with a new car and. And, you know, there would be some suggestion that Villeneuve, who'd been hurling it around Fiorano, might have broken the lap record at, at Fiorano. And, and just the idea of my hero in his scarlet flat 12 Ferrari howling around there. I mean, it just pushed all my buttons. It was just... And, and I go there now and, and, and it's pathetic because there is, you know, part of me is the, you know, the, the gimlet-eyed impartial arbiter and, you know, and, you know, getting the cars and, and you know how difficult it is to... Um, assess a Ferrari given how few laps of, of, of Fiorano that they that they give you but there is still a part of me thinking blimey this is where Villeneuve you sh- shake down the F1 cars I'm on the same bit of tarmac I'm driving through the same corners I'm going over the same bridge um, and that there is just a little bit of me that still can't quite get my head around that uh, and I kind of hope that I never can because I think the moment you that sort of seems normal to you um, that romance that you're talking about is is lost and if and if you've lost that with Ferrari, you know, what, what's left is just another car manufacturer. And Ferrari, whether you like them or not, and whatever you think about the company, it, it, the one thing Ferrari is not and never has been, is just another car manufacturer. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, God, I was just thinking about it there. I, I love that these very old car manufacturers, they sort of, they begin in little workshops, perhaps on the outskirts of town or the, the middle of town. And then, if, certainly in the case of Ferrari, over the decades, they grow and they grow and they grow and then you you suddenly have this enormous manufacturing facility and sort of R&D centers right in the middle of town um, and then the test track has got apartment buildings sort of butting right up against it um, and it, it, I just love that it's right there in the middle of Marinello um, anyway so we've uh, it, you know we'll often talk about modern Ferrari road cars because um, we're, we're generally quite topical with this podcast so I think we should switch our attention for the next 10 minutes or so to some of the older stuff. Um, and in that case, I have to completely defer to you because I've driven so little of the, the, the older cars. We've mentioned it before, in a, actually in a quite a recent podcast, but is the F40 still the one, uh, the old Ferrari that, that you sort of pine long to own? Or is it a Daytona or an F50 or something? No, it, it, it's absolutely the F40. Um, and it's not just Ferraris. If I think of any car of more than, I don't know, 10 years old, um, so like any road car that I just want to go and go and drive, uh, if you could just, you know, if I, if I, if I had them all there and I could just go and drive, well, I go and drive an F40. Um, and it's, it's, it's always, it's always, it briefly wasn't, um, when I drove the LaFerrari, um, 
I was so blown away by that car. It was my favourite of the uh, of the Holy Trinity, um, and I loved that car. And I wrote at the time that you know my favourite road car has always been the F40, but now um, I've got to modify that. And I, I've I've revisited that a few times and thought, was I thinking straight at the time? And I kind of understand why I wrote it at the time but things kind of settle over time don't they and it's been five years six years since i drove the LaFerrari, and you know and now it's kind of in the past like the f40 is and you know if if if, if i had a LaFerrari or an f40 parked outside now and the welsh mountains at my disposal i'd just get in the f40 i just would it is so it, it just does things in terms of the way that I feel about the, the, the other cars. There is a sense of occasion. You know, I'm so old. I've been doing this for such a long time. I'm afraid I tend to sleep quite well the night before I drive most cars. But I never do the night before I know I'm going to drive an F40 because I know that it's going to be an absolutely stonking occasion. Um, and the look of the thing, the focus of the thing, the sparseness of the thing, the sound of the thing, um, they're, 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 those nothing about that car i don't absolutely love and they're not terribly good if i'm honest with you by modern i mean if you put an f40 around a track uh next to an f8 tributo it would it would just be so embarrassing it would be so i mean actually the f40 once it had found some traction um probably wouldn't be a lot slower in a straight line i haven't done the math but i would think their power to weight ratios aren't that far removed from each other but of course the moment you have to try and slow the thing down let alone go around a corner i mean it's just you know you're just talking you know totally totally different levels of of ability but i know which one would raise my pulse more and i know which one i would come back in you know just laughing my head for i mean yeah F- f40s are to me they're just the cars and i don't just mean a ferraris i just mean of all road cars um it's you know mclaren f1 is is obviously an absolutely extraordinary device and i've been so lucky to have driven um one or two of them um but no the the car if i could only have one is the f40 that said if i did have an f40 i've not the slightest idea what i'd do with it um because it's it's not terribly practical um but yeah love it hardly seems to matter does it um i've i've never driven one i'm not sure if i've mentioned this before but the, the, the closest i've come to an f40 was a few years ago when I was helping Chris Harris um, with some video shoots, I was just a, a la- you know, a lackey doing a bit of driving, getting lunch. Um, and he, it was that video that he did up at Anglesey with the F40 and the F50. Um, and he drove them both like they were M3s, modern M3s. And I sat in with him in the F40. Oh. Um, and it, well, then it, you've I, had I, a lot it, of it, mate. You've had a lot of it then, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was staggering. Uh, and the way he fling, flung that thing around, you know, God, that was a that was a hell of an experience. Um, but I, after that, you know, I totally get the the F40 thing. What, what did Gordon Murray say about the F40 the other day? He he, it was he said it was the only sort of late eighties, early nineties era supercar that he yeah. liked. Didn't yeah, he? when they when they were doing the F1, they got all the rivals together. They got everything. Uh, I think they got a Jaguar and a Bugatti and a Lamborghini and, blah, 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 blah. and obviously, and they got an F40. Um, and, and I don't want to put words into Gordon's mouth, but I think he basically said they were all rubbish apart from the F40. Um, and I know because I've had other conversations with him. Uh, I, I mean, I, I know that he he said to me, and I'm not talking now, I'm talking back in the 1990s, that 
there was, I'm not sure that he regretted it, but I think there's a little bit of him that uh, wanted the F1 to be more like an F40 and a bit more raw. And I think that he was glad to be able to do the LM um, because that was exactly that. That was kind of, you know, uh, an F40ized F1. Um, and I know how much he, he admired it. I said, what was that wonderful line that you came up with? He said, of course, if you asked me to make an F40, I couldn't do it because I don't know anyone who can weld that badly. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was a a lovely line. But yeah, no, it's the car, definitely. I I remember a few years ago at the Goodwood Revival being stood on one of the banks. um, I think it was probably raining slightly. And it was, what was the race? Maybe it was the TT. I can't remember. But there was a, a 250 short wheelbase in it, a silver one with a yellow stripe. Beautiful. And the sound that it made, that Colombo V12, the sound as it drove away from you, it was just stunning. Stunning, um, yeah. And to me, to me, even now, the, the, the 250 short wheelbase is the sort of classic V12 Ferrari that I long for. But w- w- is, which is the best? I mean, presumably you've driven a handful of them. Which is the one that I should actually sort of admire most? What, which isn't an F40? Yeah, of the V12 front end. Oh, the, oh, of that lot. Um, okay, I haven't driven an LM because I can't get into them. I've tried to drive an LM and failed. Um, I see, it has to be. I mean, it's such a. I, I'm only sort of hesitating because I'm trying to avoid the cliche of saying, well, it's a 250 GTO, isn't it? Um, because A, that involves a certain level of showy offishness because just just to admit, just to admit that you've actually driven one, which I have, um, but it is it is. I mean, it is kind of it's the sort of the ultimate of a certain kind of Ferrari um, of the very traditional kind of Ferrari that you have. You know, where you have a space frame, frame chassis and a a live axle at the back uh, and a Colombo V12 at the front, and that just achingly beautiful bodywork and 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 the other thing is is that obviously you know the 250 gt which the gto was based upon was you know when the gto came out was quite an old car i think the gt came out in about 1954 um and they evolved it and they evolved it and they evolved it through all sorts of different iterations through the tour de france through the short wheelbase and ultimately to the gto and to go any further than that they had to stick the engine behind the driver and, and make the LO. um and what ferrari was so good at was just refining and perfecting what it already had uh, and that's why gtos despite the fact there was there was nothing technologically sophisticated about a gto at all there single camshaft per bank engines live rear axles um you know nothing you know space frame construction you know no monocoques there or or, or, or anything clever and yet nothing could get near them they were just so beautifully honed. And one of the reasons that people um, struggled to keep up with the GTOs was because everybody who was driving the GTOs was having such a good time. They were just, they had so much confidence. They knew that, A, they knew the cars wouldn't break because they never did. Those cars were pretty much unbustable. Um, they knew they were pretty safe in them, which was quite important back then because by the standards of early 60s sports racing cars, which I agree wasn't great, but by the standards of most of the GTOs were actually pretty strong, as were all Ferraris from that, engine, that, that era, they were easy to drive and they just, they just gave you huge amounts of confidence. So you could just get in them and thrash the nuts off them and 24 hours later they'd still be doing the same thing. Um, so yeah, I've, I, you know, I sort of blithe to I've driven a GTO. Uh, I did drive one once, um, which was an extraordinary car. It's that sort of pale green BRP car that Innes Island won the 
1962 Goodwood TT in. It's the car that Sterling Moss was due to have driven on the day he had his big accident. It was sitting there waiting in the paddock for him. Um, and actually, if you peel back the upholstery on the driver's seat, you can still, still see where someone has scratched moss onto the aluminium of the seat frame. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's the car. Um, and the bloke who owned it at the time um, just very, very kindly let me do a few laps of Goodwood in it. So, yeah. Bloody hell. What yeah, a I know, I know. Um, and I said to him, we can't ensure this. And he went, well, you better not crash it then. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, and, right. and it wasn't, and I didn't. So uh, all, all the world That's a responsibility. Um, I, I, there's an, an artist who does those gorgeous pop arty style paintings or pieces of art. I think it's t- maybe it's Tim Lazel. And he's got yes. um, one piece, which is Goodwood on a summer's day with a 250 GTO and I think an Aston drifting through one of the quick corners um, in, in this sort of distinctive style. And I, when I look at that, image i just feel something and i you know i the, a sort of longing to have been to, be to have lived through that era yeah, yeah absolutely I mean, and how lucky we are that we've got the revival so that you can still go and see i mean there aren't too many gtos there but there's still some but you can still go and see those cars um you know being hooned around that track um and to get some sense of what it is that you're talking about um yeah because you're absolutely right they just you just want to be there don't you you just want to see uh, but the one thing sadly that you can't see um is the people who drove them um and you know the sort of you know the john surtees and in islands and and that lot in the gtos and jim clark and the db4 gt zagato and that and that sort of thing um and to have seen that combination um of you know those cars and those drivers together would have just been I mean, for me, you could keep Formula One. I'd just watch that stuff all day long. Yeah, absolutely. God, when we talk about older Ferraris and the the romance of it all, I have to remind myself that it's the same company that when, you know, Ferrari sometimes nowadays, um, it can be the, the car manufacturer that people call up when they want to sort of have a pop at, you know, supercar culture, particularly in the modern world. They're very Instagrammable aspect of supercar life um of cars being driven recklessly through town of people buying ferraris just to show off just to project yeah. a certain image yeah you know there, there's there is a sort of uh, you know a more sort of pernicious connotation around ferrari nowadays but when you think about those older cars you realize what all that stuff is actually based upon and you know where where the brand comes from and just how special it really is yeah and you know and to an extent um, you know, not that I'm in any way leaping to Ferrari's defence here, but I think it's the same for all car manufacturers, is they can't really help who their customers are. Um, and if you're going to start turning away good business because you don't quite like the cut of their jib, then, you know, you're not going to be in business for for very long. And I would be much more critical of Ferrari were it not for the single fact, which no one would deny, which is that Ferraris are being engineered better now than at any time in their history. Um, and, you know, whatever you may say, and you're absolutely right that, you know, lots and lots and lots, maybe even the majority of Ferraris are sold not to people who just love, you know, just love driving for the sake of driving, but are, 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 are you know, fashion victims, image conscious, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, that doesn't stop Ferrari making the most exceptional road cars. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, if you, if, if you look at their current lineup, um, 
you know, I haven't driven the Roma, um, the launch has been, but sadly I was uh, unavoidably detained elsewhere. Um, but so I can't speak for that. But for everything else, I mean, I don't think, I mean, there may have been times when Ferrari's lineup has been as strong as it is now. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's ever been stronger. Um, and you can argue against the concept of the SF90. And I have a bit because I would like it even more than I do uh, if it were a little bit lighter and a little less complex. But it is still a stunningly engineered car, which can do things that, you know, no road car I've driven has been able to do. Um, you know, you look at the F8, which you and I have both driven. It's quite an aging design now, but my goodness, um, what a fun thing to just punt from one place to another. Look at 812 Superfast. I mean, I mean, just, just what a, you know, what a sense of occasion uh, and, and an immense experience. Uh, I'm not really that knocked out by the two plus twos, but they, you know, they do their job in Ferraris or they they're part of Ferraris iconography as, as much as anything else but you know they just you know what ferrari haven't done is just thought to themselves well actually you know we only sell these cars to people who don't really care about driving so we won't bother about making them good to drive we'll just make them look really really good and make a nice noise and you know and that'll be enough they've never done that they've never ever sold out um and you know i, I massively admire them for that because you know the temptation must be there and i kind of hope that now ferrari's under news management they don't give into it um because it will be the end of them um and it's going to be fascinating isn't it to see what this suv of theirs is is going to be like ah okay well there we go so uh final point then now that lamborghini aston martin rolls royce bentley and so on have done suvs do you think the idea of a ferrari suv is more palatable than it once was or are you still sort of offended by the prospect of it i don't like the idea but i didn't like the idea of a porsche suv you know 20 years ago when they did the cayenne i don't like the idea of a an aston martin mpv or a you know or a lamborghini mpv uh, mpv sorry suv <laughs> um but you know i i have been persuaded by the logic of them um i may not particularly like the idea of them but i do completely understand that to the manufacturers, it is the SUVs that provide the funds that enables them to continue to develop the cars we really want them to buy um, to new levels of ability. They wouldn't, you know, I, I, I always use things like GT3 RSs for this kind of thing. You know, if you think that a GT3 RS is would be as good as it is today, had the Cayenne never been built, you're living on cloud cuckoo land because that's just not the way that it works. Um, and you know the the sports cars the cars we really want ferraris to be are what makes people want to buy a ferrari suv and it will be the money that the ferrari suv makes which enables ferrari to continue to make cars that you and i so you have to understand that please think of the word synergistic relationship um because that's the way that it works so i don't much like the idea but also at the same time you know i i think job one for people who do what you and I do for a living is don't prejudge anything um, and don't listen to, you know, other people, you know, sounding off about cars they haven't even seen, let alone driven. Maybe it will be the lightest SUV in that category. Maybe it'll be the best looking. Maybe it'll be the best to drive. Um, and if that enables Ferrari to, I mean, I don't like big SUVs full stop. I mean, I find them profligate. Um, you know, they're not pointless because I do understand why some people like them and buy them, but they're just not my kind of car. It's just, it's just not me. I'd just much rather have a four door saloon or an estate or, or, or whatever. But, you know, you can't, 
ignore their presence in the market. You can't ignore the fact that you will have customers who want to give you their money uh, if you build that kind of car. So you've just got to do it. I mean, think, I think the DBX is a really good example of this. I don't think for a moment that Aston Martin's chief engineers were sitting there you know, rubbing their hands together at the prospect of building a 2.3-ton SUV. Um, but given that that is what's required of them, you just do the best job you can. And I think they have. And I'm, I'm sure that Ferrari will. I'm, I'm, more than, I'm also I'm just really interested because, you know, having driven all their stuff, just how talented those guys are. Um, and I'm just really, really interested um, about what's going to turn out when they turn their attention to a kind of car they've never built before. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating, isn't it? I, I sort of agree with you. It's a pity that these car manufacturers, these high-end supercar sports car manufacturers have to go down that route, but they have to go down that route, sadly. It's the the world that we're living in now. Um, okay, well, I, I think we demonstrated there why the, the Ferrari podcast needs to be so many parts. We haven't covered a great deal of ground just because there's so much to say, isn't there? There's so much history. Um, there's so much sort of controversy. We could we could do podcasts just on sort of cylinder counts. We could do eight cylinder Ferraris, and then we could do flat twelve Ferraris and V twelve Ferraris. We could probably do six cylinder Ferraris if you include the deal, and each one would be a podcast in its own right, wouldn't it? We and you fill an hour standing on your head. So, um, or maybe we'll do front engine Ferraris and mid engine. I don't know, but we, we will come back to this subject because I really, you know, you said to me before we started, we we're scarcely going to scratch the surface, but you know, I think we've barely put a mark on the surface. So. Um, <laughs> We will return. There you go. And if there's any anything that you listeners particularly want us to cover from a Ferrari point of view, let us know. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, there we go. We'll wrap that, that one up there. Otherwise, we'll go on forever. Um, and as ever, everybody, please remember to leave a review. Um, that really does make a difference. Also, subscribe to the Drive Nation podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And remember as well, our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Drive Nation. Head over there. Bung us a few quid a month. Um, and, and, it, and it means that we'll be able to continue to talk rubbish to each other, which we quite enjoy doing. Yeah, and you, you get um, exclusive content for your efforts and for your money. Um, so there we go. We'll, we'll revisit Ferrari at some point in the future, but we'll call it a day um, for this one. Uh, we'll talk to you all again next week. Look forward to it. Thank you one and all. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 